Thank you, Evan. Good morning, church. Always a joy to go into scripture together with you. Um, Before we do that this morning, uh, I wanted to give you guys an update and express some gratitude on um, the past week or so. I've received a number of emails from uh, a number of you uh, expressing concern for for Honduras. Um, Many of you know I wasn't born here. I was born in Honduras and about a week and a half ago, uh, Hurricane Ada, um, in, in something I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime, uh, went in a 20-hour window, went from a tropical depression to a Category 4, borderline Category 5 hurricane, uh, slammed into um, East Nicaragua, and then uh, went directly across Honduras. And as a result, just a massive amount of flash flooding, landslides. Um, they describe, I've, shown, I've seen pictures and videos, they describe this as a, as a Katrina-like event for, for them. Got a picture for you guys. Um, gentleman on your far right is my older brother, and the gentleman with the green shirt in the middle, he's a, a pastor. My brother's a pastor there as well, and they sent me that, pic- that picture this week. They're, they're in the middle of relief efforts, helping out local communities, and they've had to stop that. They've had to stop that because tomorrow uh, or Tuesday night, um, another uh, hurricane category four slash five is going to walk its way into Honduras. Very much the same pattern out of the, out of nowhere, a little depression forms. And then within a, within a day, it just balloons into a monster. So um, I I texted pastor Keith and I said, Keith, I'd love for us to pray as a church for um, the area for the Christians in the area as well. And then give you guys an update. A number of you have said, Ronald has your family. How are your friends? They're doing well. Uh, everyone's accounted for, but they certainly need their prayers. Um, let, let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, you, you promised in your word all the way back in Genesis 12 that through the seed of a man by the name of Abraham, you would bless all nations. And Lord, what you were referring to was that one would come from the seed of Abraham, a savior, whom would draw people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, Lord. And we see that in the book of Revelation where around the throne, around the lamb, there are people from every ethnicity, every color of skin, every place on earth, speaking any, any and every language, worshiping the one who is worthy of all praise, the lamb who's been slain, Lord. We are a, a, a people, Lord, made up of a number of different peoples. Father, so believers in Central America and Nicaragua and Honduras, they are our brothers and sisters. They may look differently than we do, Father. They may sound differently than we do, but they have been bought with the same blood and ushered into the same kingdom that we here in America are a part of as Christians, Lord. So we pray, Father, for your mercies in their life, Father. We pray that you, the God who spoke creation into existence, that you, Christ, the one who spoke peace into storms, Father, would have mercy on that part of the world, Father, that through your active hand, you would mitigate some of the disaster that may happen, Father. That in heaven, as you hear us this morning, O Lord, in your sovereign plan, you would have considered these words and You would have done something, steered the storm in a direction, Father, that would lead to less destruction and less chaos. And Father, we pray, in addition to um, mercy for people there, Father, we pray that somehow, in some way, Father, through your 
infinite wisdom that you would take account your sovereign plan of salvation and that salvation would visit the people of Honduras and Nicaragua, Lord, through this storm, Lord. Your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting um, verse 29. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I love going to the movie theater. Um, I have ever since I was a kid. Uh, it's been a while since I've been to the theater for obvious reasons, but I can't wait to, um, at some point where I guess you're allowed to go to the movie theater, uh, to go back. Uh, and I'm one of those weird people that I love the entire experience of going to the theater. Uh, so if the movie starts at 7, um, I show up at 6.30. As I want to be in my seat, ready to go, because there's, there's sections of the experience that, that are important to me. And you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you, you go watch a movie and, and you sit down. And, and the first section that you're introduced to is um, these type of games, this kind of entertainment where their trivia questions are asked. And maybe 10 minutes into the movie, 10 minutes before the movie, you're, you're guided through a whole sort of entertainment and games and, and, and stuff that's fun and whimsical, uh, background features on actors and stuff. I love that. And then the second section I really look forward to is the, the upcoming previews. Uh, so I, I've made it a point to tell my wife we've been going on dates to the movies forever. And I told her, when those previews start, don't talk to me. Because I, I, I want to know what's coming. That's important to me. I, I just, I, I love the, okay, what, we, what movie am I going to watch next, right? So that section is, is, it might not matter much to you, but it, it matters to me. And then the third section in the movie theater experience is the actual movie, right? You guys go to the movie and you sit and that's what you paid, you know, $20 for a movie or however much it costs nowadays. And you sit through an hour and a half to two hours of entertainment and um, that section comes to an end. And that's followed by this one section where the lights go up and the screen turns black and you see the credits, right? Uh, and what do people, people typically do when that's going on? That's when you get up and leave, right? That's your cue, the credits. We don't need to watch that. That's not important. Let's just go ahead and go. And so that's been the pattern of movie watching. But about 10 years ago, a trend took over entertainment. Uh, as a result of all these superhero movies, movies added another section to their movies. Post-credit scenes. So at the end of this two and a half hour, three hour movie... Um, uh, movie producers added scenes at the end of the movie after the credits. And these would be scenes related to the movie, uh, um, just uh, devices to kind of introduce uh, uh, a hook to get you interested uh, uh, in what the next movie may or may not be, something funny, something related to the movie, but kind of it would stay in its own place. And so that changed the way people watch movies. Now you go to the movie and, and most people feel, no, I have to sit through these credits because am I going to miss something out on the end? Uh, but those are some of the best parts of the experience. What are they going to come up with when these post-credit scenes? Well, the passage we're looking at, them at this morning um, is akin to a post-credit scene in a movie. As a matter of fact, if you open your Bible, you'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and right at around verse 29, your Bible might have a paragraph break. And then it lasts all the way to verse 34. And then on verse 35, that new section begins with a heading. 
That's probably what you have in your Bible. So, so Paul seems to be talking about something in verses 1 through 28, and then he's going to pick something up on verse 35, and then you have this little section there that, that feels like a post-credit movie scene. Um, so this morning, we're, 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 we're going to walk into this, and it's a real practical text of Scripture, real, real practical insights we can glean from this passage um, and this carries over from last week's sermon. Last week, we, we, we saw an incredible movie, unbelievable sermon on the previous text. And, and, and so this is like the continuation to that in some sense. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. Paul writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, soften our hearts and illumine our minds to receive your truth and let it change us and what we do, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 15 is a glorious chapter in the Bible and particularly in this book. We've been visiting with the Corinthians for a couple of years now and we've made it all the way to chapter 15. In chapter 15 verse 1, Paul begins a, a really long development, a long argument. There's one primary idea that encompasses the entire chapter, 40-something, um, 50-something verses. It's a long chapter. And the idea is basically the resurrection of Christ and its implications and how it engages with other ideas. So at the beginning of the chapter, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the importance of the gospel in their lives. As we've walked with the Corinthians over the past number of months, you know, Paul has engaged with a number of their ideas about church and life. Um, he's, he's brought correction to certain things they do. He's brought instruction to certain patterns of living uh, that they shouldn't be following. He's, he's clarified certain questions. They've reached out to him in this letter and they've asked, Hey, Paul, what about this? Hey, Paul, what about this? Hey, Paul, what about this? And the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, gives answers to really important topics uh, and really important questions. But chapter 15 is, is, a, is a, the moment where Paul says, Listen, Everything I've talked to you guys is important. But the most important thing for you as a believer is that you remember the gospel. This is crucial for everything we've talked about hinges on you getting the gospel right. The gospel of first importance. So we walked into chapter 15, uh, Paul, in, in Paul reminding us, not pushing all those ideas off the table, but clarifying them through the priority of let's get the gospel right 
All that stuff is only important because of the gospel. Therefore, we have to get the gospel right. So he begins a conversation bringing them back to recall the importance of the gospel. And then in verse 12 of chapter 15, he, he now addresses a problem that they have. A very specific issue that has shown up in the church. Apparently, there are some in the church of Corinth who are teaching that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Uh, by that, uh, what is meant is basically when you die, you spiritually go somewhere and, and that's it. Um, where scripture would teach quite the opposite, that there is in fact a day when we will ra be raised from the grave in physical form. So that seems to be uh, an idea that they're circulating and Paul goes right at that idea. And so verses 12 all the way through verse 28, Paul gives them, hey, listen, you guys are believing this idea. That's a bad idea. And here's why it's a bad idea. Because if you deny that people will be raised from the grave, if you, if you claim that there is no resurrection of the dead, well, Christ died. And so if you believe this, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. So you're in trouble with your sins. And, and, and we uh, saw how Paul literally says your faith is pointless. Your faith is vain. You, you ought to be pitied, pitied because you basically believe a lie. So we walked through that. And then last week, Pastor Keith featured something that Paul brings up to, to highlight again why, why the resurrection of the dead is such a precious, precious reality. Pastor Keith brought us a sermon um, considering death. Considering life lived in the shadow of death and how death is this permanent reality that is in our lives and we can't do anything about it. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you've got a massive unanswered question over here. So that's the train of thought that, that, that is behind this text that leads into what we read earlier. And, and from these little six verses, four, five verses, there's two very practical insights. Again, uh, post-credit scenes, they're, they're practical, they're, they're, they're witty, they're, they're to the point. This segment of scripture gives us at least two very practical insights, and they are as follows. So Pastor Keith uh, entitled the sermon last week, Life Lived in the Shadow of Death. Um, picking up on that idea, this sermon is entitled, Life Lived in the Light of the Resurrection. And so the insights are life lived in the light of the resurrection is a life of examined ideas and a life lived with a unique lifestyle. So let's, let's consider that first insight. Let's read verse 29 again together. Verse 29 says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So let's examine what we just read and, and try and explain what's being said here. And I think that the most obvious question to ask is, what is meant by being baptized on behalf of the dead? You might read that passage and certain ideas come to mind. Um, you, you might populate baptism of the dead with certain things you've picked up through life. But this is a very, very challenging passage in Scripture. Every now and then you bump into a passage in Scripture that becomes very, very hard. You may be asking yourself, well, that seems pretty, pretty self-evident. What is hard about that? Well, it's hard because this phrase, this idea of living people baptizing themselves for dead people doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. That's it. 
That's all we get. So there's no description of what they're saying. There's no details on, on, on why they're doing it. And so it, it, it leaves us with more questions than answers. Noted New Testament scholar Gordon Fee said in his commentary, The normal reading of what Paul wrote is that some Corinthians were being baptized, apparently vicariously, in behalf of some people who have already died. That much makes sense to us, right? It would be fair to add that this reading is such a plain understanding of the Greek text that no one would ever have imagined that various alternatives were it not for the difficulties involved, both historical and theological. And just as a point of reference, um, there's about 40 different interpretations of this passage. 40. Uh, so, right, what's actually happening here? So he continues, the problem is twofold. Number one, there is no historical or biblical precedent for such baptism. The New Testament is otherwise completely silent about it. There is no known practice in any Orthodox community in the centuries that immediately follow, nor are there parallels or precedents in pagan religion. This is a genuinely idiosyncratic historical phenomenon. For that reason, we are left quite in the dark on all the essential questions. Who was being baptized? For whom were they being baptized? Why were they doing it? He concludes, it is quite impossible to give a definitive answer to any of these questions. So we have no record, no idea, no, 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 no reference point to anywhere in, in, in pagan religion or in Christian thought before this text is written. And in the churches of the next several centuries, this isn't talked about or expressed or practiced. So translation to what Dr. Fee said, the Corinthians made something up. The Corinthians made something out of whole cloth, just created this idea of baptism for the dead. And they were practicing or believing this idea of baptism for the dead. So that, that, that's one of the reasons why this is kind of hard to understand and explain what's actually happening here. The second reason is one that you're probably more familiar with. Um, this is one of those, I call these COVID-19 passages in the Bible. If you have a conversation with anyone on Facebook, on social media, and, and wherever, about COVID-19, you'll quickly notice that the conversation will start about COVID-19, and then it will kind of go in directions that have nothing to do with COVID-19, right? So conspiracy theories will show up, oh, this is really this, oh, this is really that, oh, this is really that. And the more the conversation continues, the less information about COVID-19 is actually shared. Um, this is one of those passages. Um, and the, the reason for that is, as time, has as time has gone on, a number of different religions across the world and cults have developed doctrines related to baptism of the dead and used this as um, the, the, the proof text. Uh, so, for example, Mormons. M Mormonism would teach that uh, it is necessary for a living person, a living Mormon, to baptize himself or herself on behalf of a Mormon who has already died. That for this person who has died, for this person to enter their idea of heaven, a, a living person must be baptized on their behalf. This is one of the passages that, that, that they pull from. Now, Mormons are not alone in this. Roman Catholicism over the century has taught, not that necessarily, but they've expressed ideas related to how our 
uh, deeds and our actions and what we as living people do can have an influence over people who have passed. And, and this is one of the texts that they would point to. So there's a lot of baggage with this verse. You come and you read it and, and ideas, uh, religious ideas come with the reading of this text. So a helpful question to ask, real clarifying question. Is Paul teaching in this text that we just read that it's okay to be baptized on behalf of people who have died? If you read the text, then you must come to the same conclusion that most of us have come to, and that is no. He is not teaching that it's okay to be baptized on behalf of the dead. See, Paul is describing something. Paul is pointing to something they are doing. He's picking up an idea they have and he's referencing it. He said, hey guys, you believe in this. Why do you do that? He's not giving commands on the idea. He's not directing them to do, to perform baptism for that in certain ways. He's not ordering it. He's not commending them because they do that. He's questioning their practice. And this is a pattern that we've noticed from Paul since we started this sermon series a couple of years ago. We've seen this before. Paul will typically laser focus on something that the Corinthians are doing wrong. He knows them really well. And he'll, he'll pick up something they do, they'll do. He picks up something they believe in and he says, hey guys, let's, let, let's talk about this. You see this over here? You're doing this. That's not good. You need to be doing this. Um, and so uh, things like spiritual gifts, for example, we spent a, a significant amount of time studying spiritual gifts. Paul, Paul brings up the topic of spiritual gifts and he says, hey, you guys are doing spiritual gifts this way, this way, this way, this way. Don't. Um, they had an understanding earlier in the book about wisdom. Wisdom was something that they valued and they, that it made them want to be certain people. He picks their, their idea of wisdom and he corrects it. Uh, the Lord's Supper. These people were coming to church and they were having communion and getting drunk and eating. And he picks up that description of what they were doing. He points to it and he says, this is not how you guys should be doing that. Um, and in chapter 15, the primary idea he's wrestling with is you guys do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so when he starts addressing this idea, you guys don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if you don't believe that... Why is this other idea you guys believe important to you? That's what he's doing. He's not condoning. He's not commanding. He's not asking them to do this. He's, he's examining their ideas. And Paul points them not to one, but to two of those bad, unexamined doctrinal ideas that they're walking around with. And this is the point that, that these ideas don't stay in their heads. This isn't just like they think about these things and then close their brain and then go about their lives unaffected by what they were believing. These ideas influence what they wind up doing in the church. They take the Corinthians somewhere. So it's a very practical lesson for us here about the danger of unexamined ideas and the insidious nature of bad doctrine. So what, what Paul seems to be doing here is, and maybe a traveling analogy w will be helpful, unexamined ideas are, are more like a 15-passenger van than a motorcycle. Unexamined ideas, bad doctrine, 
These things are more like a 15-passenger van than a motorcycle. How many people can ride a motorcycle? One, right? Motorcycles travel alone by themselves. How many people drive in a 15-passenger van? 15, right? A group of them. So what we're learning from, from the Corinthians is that their, their life under unexamined ideas reveals that bad ideas travel in groups. Bad ideas like to, like to carpool. And that carpooling leads them somewhere. So the key bad doctrinal idea, the key bad doctrinal idea that they're wrestling with is denying the resurrection of the dead... But then notice how another bad idea shows up as well. Baptism of the dead. So th these two ideas are, are traveling with the Corinthians. And notice how they travel together. So let me give you another example of this. Actually related to baptism as well. But how this leads to somewhere. It's not just bad thinking. It's not just innocent thinking. It's not just getting something mentally right and saying, oh yeah, I need to adjust that. These bad ideas travel somewhere and they take you somewhere and then you wind up doing what or you, you, you do the things that these ideas take you to do. Look, look at the beginning of the book in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. So very first verses Paul introduces us to a problem in the Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So, one of the problems the Corinthians are facing is they're, they're fighting with one another. They go to church, and they don't go to church to sing. They don't go to church to hear the word of God. There's quarreling. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? So, what's causing their division? What's causing their division? Their division, what they do, is connected to a bad idea. The bad idea is... Is, oh, Paul is better than Cephas. Oh, Apollos is more influential than, than this guy. Oh, I like that leader because he sounds a certain way. I like that leader because he does certain things. All these leaders are t taking them the same place. There's no, is Christ divided? So a bad idea leads them to do bad things. Do you see that? And then notice another bad idea that shows up. Verse four, uh, 13, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. As a pastor, one of the things I enjoy the most is baptizing people. That's a weird verse for me to hear Paul say. I'm, thank God I didn't baptize any of you but two. That, that's a weird thing to say. Unless Paul understands the bad idea that's bouncing around their heads. The Corinthians seem to not only favor certain leaders. But they seem to believe that if I get baptized by that dude. 
It's like, he's an apostle, right? Paul is an apostle. He's a super apostle. So that means that his baptism is going to be a super baptism. So I'm going to be more Baptist in my baptism because I got baptized by the super baptizer. Then you see how dumb ideas. And so that causes division. That causes problems. Now look back at chapter 15, verse 12. Let's trace this idea in this context. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Jump down to verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I'm going to make the argument that the same people struggling with baptism issues in chapter 15 are probably some of the same people that Paul referenced all the way back in chapter 1. That bad ideas about baptism have led them to do a whole bunch of weird things. There's this interconnectedness between bad ideas and doing bad things. Bad ideas travel together and they lead you to not only bad places, but to do bad things. And so divisions result as a result of uh, super baptism and no resurrection of the dead is somehow attached to baptism for the dead. And again, notice that these ideas are walking with them, that they're perfectly comfortable sitting with these contradictory ideas. This is what's so practical about this text. On the one hand, they do not believe that there is such a thing as being raised from the dead physically. But on the other hand, they believe that living people need to do stuff for dead people who are going to remain dead. It makes no sense. Why do I need to do something for someone who's going to stay dead? Why do I, as a living person who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, need to, need to do certain things to someone who's never going to come back from the dead? Like, what, what, what could... It's contradictory. These ideas walk together and, 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 and they're foolish. Now, do you see how dangerous this can be? Not just in terms of doctrines, but in terms of behavior. And I think, I think this is where we land on this segment of our sermon this morning. Look at the flow of this passage again. Trace this thought. Connect these things all the way back to verse 12 again. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Jump down to verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Denying good doctrine leads you to bad doctrine, which leads to confusion, which leads to verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Why? For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The Corinthians sinned. They were expert sinners, and that expertise is directly connected to their lack of expertise on what they knew about God. 
They sinned because they had no knowledge of God. And in the absence of knowledge of God, they filled that absence with ideas they created, which not only led them to believe weird things, but it led them to do bad things. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is unexamined ideas are dangerous for the church. They're they're dangerous for you. Not only are we susceptible to them, but, but we're capable of creating, believing, and holding them dear. Left unchecked, their influence is such that they can lead us away from God and towards sin. As a result, life lived in the light of the, resur- life lived in the, light of the resurrection is a, a life of constant examination. Here's some examination passages. Uh, Paul, the same writer of Corinth, will write to other churches and, and continue this idea of examination. Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's not a one-time thing. That's a consistent renewal, consistent examination of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Life lived in the light of the resurrection. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern. Examine. Think through what you're doing. Think through how you're doing life. Think think through what you value. Think about your religious practices. Don't just do them dispassionately and in an uninformed way. Think through them. Discern them. Does this please God? Well, I don't know. How do I find out? Well, that's that's what, what we're seeking to aim here. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But, he says, keep watch on yourself. So examine yourself. Lest you be tempted too. And verse 4 says, But let each one test his own work. So some, some application questions for us may be helpful. I'm a couple of years away from 40. So I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to straddle two generational divides over here. Um, I'm going to speak to people 40 years older than me. So from 40 to 80. And I'm going to speak to people 40 years younger than me, from 40 to one, zero. Um, both, both of these generations, I want to speak to you as a neutral party, right? We're learning from this passage that life lived in the light of the resurrection is a life of examined ideas, continually examining ideas. That when we don't examine ideas, we are led to bad places and we wind up doing bad things, So, older generation, let me start with you. Have you evaluated your beliefs and ideas about God lately? Have you lived a life routinely examining ideas? You buy a car... You have to do routine maintenance to the car. And one of the things that they do is they examine your car. They don't just change the oil and change the air filter. They look at the car. Do you do that, older people? Folks who've been in the church for a long time, have you developed a pattern of 
examining the ideas about faith in God and church that you believe in? Are your long-held beliefs and dear-to-your-heart practices and church activities based on the knowledge of God? Would you be able to describe a ministry or or something in church life or, 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 or a particular activity in church or a setting in church that you love, that you hold dear, that is valuable to you, that is meaningful to you? Would you be able to justify its existence based on the knowledge of God alone? Older generation, where is the Apostle Paul in your life? What's interesting about this passage, again, so practical. The Corinthians are walking with something really, really bad. They're, they're, they're not believing something like, well, every pastor should wear a tie. They're, whatever. That's not what they're believing. They're believing something that literally believes them, them out of Christianity. That's the result of their belief. If you deny the resurrection of the dead, logically you wind up denying the work of Christ because you deny his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, you're a walking contradiction. You're believing yourself out of Christianity. And they have no awareness of that. Within themselves, they are incapable of coming to that conclusion. They can't see that contradiction. Do you see that in the text? Paul needs to talk to them and say, hey guys, wake up. So older folks, you guys who have served this church for decades, for years, who... who, Guys like me stand on your shoulders. Have you, have you evaluated your ideas? Do you have an Apostle Paul type person or setting that helps inform your ideas? That your ideas are vetted and filtered through? That challenges your ideas? Or does tradition, comfort, and loyalty to your generation determine the validity of your ideas? Do you look outside yourself to have your ideas examined? Or are you the determining factor on whether an idea is biblical? Now, young people, let me talk to you. Have you evaluated your beliefs and ideas about God? Not lately, but at any point. Have you created patterns in your life that lead to routine examination of ideas? You're young, you're fresh, you're smart, you're witty, you're clever, you're learning, you're growing, fantastic things. But are you walking alone with your ideas or are you walking with others to shape your ideas? Are the new beliefs and dear to your heart practices that you are beginning to hold onto based on the knowledge of God? What has gotten you excited, young folks, about being a Christian over the past two years? 
What has really popped out at you about Christian ideas and Christian faith and Christian practice? And where has that come from? Have you gotten excited about certain Christian ideas because you saw someone on Instagram? Someone on social media present an idea. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's it. Where, where is, is this, this validation for your ideas coming from? Is it based on the knowledge of God? Would you be just as excited about your ideas about church if social media didn't exist? Did social media inform you of what should be important or what should be done or not done in church? Or did you get that from scripture? Where is the Apostle Paul in your life? Where is that older saint who's seasoned? Who, yeah, he's weird. Yeah, he's quirky. Yeah, he's a downer in a couple of settings. No question about that. But who's wise? But who's faithful? But who's experienced more in the past 10 years of his life than you have in all yours? Where is that person in your life? Do you have an Apostle Paul in your life? Do you want an Apostle Paul in your life? Do you look outside yourself to have your ideas examined? So life lived in the light of the resurrection is a life of examined ideas. And the second insight we glean from this passage is life lived in the light of the resurrection leads to a unique lifestyle. And I'm calling that lifestyle a resurrection lifestyle. So let's look at verse 29 again. So Paul says, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no such thing as the afterlife, if there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, laissez le bon temps rouler, right? The good times roll, man. Just, just go out there, be happy, enjoy yourself. Christian thinker James K.A. Smith wrote a really interesting book called You Are What You Love. And he begins his book by asking the question, what do you want? That's the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When two would-be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow, Jesus wheels around on them and poignantly asks, what do you want? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John, or you and me, and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longing and desires are at the core of our identity. The wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. 
our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. I would modify a couple of things that Mr. Smith wrote here, but he is definitely onto something. He is spot on on the connection he's making between what we want and who we become by what we choose to do. What we want and who we become through the vehicle of what we choose to do. That, that train of thought, he's spot on about that. So he began with the question. Let me continue with the question. Like the Christian Center, those of you here, those of you guys watching on live stream, let me ask you something. Do you want to live life or do you want to be raised from the dead? Do you want to live life or do you want to be raised from the dead? Now, how you answer this question will have massive implications on how you walk through life. How you answer those, this question will, will lead you to pursue certain things, to get excited about certain things, to allow certain things in your life, to be modified and steered and shaped by certain things. It'll help you endure certain things. It'll lead you to submit willfully to certain things. How you answer that question will determine the lifestyle that you welcome. Your life will be directed by the answer to that question. I'm a child of the 80s and like a good boy growing up in the 80s, I watched a lot of violent action movies where people got blown up by either Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, whoever else. And he was kind of my hero. I wanted to be like Arnie. And uh, uh, some of you guys younger than me, you, you don't know who he is. Uh, you know him as the governator, uh, but I, I knew him as, as Terminator and all this type of stuff. And, and I wanted to be an action hero. And as a boy, obviously, I wanted to look like Arnold. And so uh, Arnold be started his career as a bodybuilder. So naturally, I, I wanted to follow suit, right? So I, I entered bodybuilding. And so I, at the ripe age of 13, I began to devote my life to bodybuilding. And as, as you guys could clearly see, I, I gave up on that pretty quickly. But, but, not, but nonetheless, it appeared about four or five years, I, I started training regularly. Would train four, four, six days a week, three hours a day at times. Go to this gym, old school gym, where every piece of metal is rusted and it stinks. Those were the real gyms back in the day. And I trained with these really big guys, really muscular guys. And I got into bodybuilding. I'd read Flex Magazine, Muscle and Fitness, and all that type of stuff. And, and I wanted to live the bodybuilding lifestyle. And I learned a lot about the bodybuilding lifestyle. Things that you probably don't need to know, but I'm going to bore you with anyways. But bodybuilders are really unique people. They train a lot, obviously. But that's not the hardest thing about bodybuilding. You would think that, oh, yeah, I man, if, if I could. It's, the training is not the hard part. There's two things that make bodybuilding insanely hard. That is your social life and your diet. The first is hard because you have no social life. Bodybuilding is an all-consuming reality. And then the second thing, the, 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 the dietary restriction. These guys typically eat anywhere from five to 7,000 calories a day 
They're eating massive meals every two hours. Don't be fooled in thinking that's appetizing. It's not. It is not. And these guys live their lives day in and day out in that pattern. They choose to live that life. Why is that? Why do they give themselves over to something like bodybuilding? Well, because if you do it long enough and you do it good enough, you go to this thing called Mr. Olympia and you win a little trophy with a guy bent over like this. But bodybuilding promises them a reward. It promises them something. So they give themselves over to that lifestyle because by living that lifestyle, I'm going to get this. You stick to the health idea. Some of y'all are vegetarians, right? And uh, maybe most of us should be vegetarians, right? Vegetarians, that's a good thing. Don't hear me critique you. But, but hear me make one observation. What you do is, is wonderful, but, but, but you've, you've chosen a hard life, right? You, you have determined to never pick, pick up a piece of bacon and replace it with a stalk of broccoli, right? That, that's, that's hard, okay? So if you're a vegetarian in the room, maybe someone watching a live stream, you guys are vegetarians. You, you've given yourself over to that lifestyle for what reason? It's, it's not because food tastes better. Don't, you're not going to buy, I'm, you're not going to sell that on me. No, it, it does not taste better. But because eating that way affords you certain benefits, right? Not eating bacon for 20 years will make your arteries look really good when you're in your late 50s, early 60s, right? So you give over, you give yourself over to that lifestyle. You deprive yourself of certain tastes, of certain experiences, because the lifestyle promises you certain rewards, certain better rewards. And it could be a number of different lifestyles. Just picked on those two. But my point is that lifestyle choices are not made naively. You, you don't step into a lifestyle. Like you, you don't trip into a lifestyle. You don't wake up one day and find out, oh, I'm a bodybuilder. Right? Oh, I woke up today and I, I'm a vegetarian. That doesn't happen. My, my, my wife and I entered into a lifestyle of homeschooling our kids. And we didn't wake up one day and said, but hey, we're homeschoolers. We didn't know that. No. There's a lot of forethought and investment and time. And, and t- we wake up every now and then and said, Are we, do we really want to be homeschoolers? And, and the lifestyle could be whatever it could be. But you intentionally pursue these lifestyles. You agree to them. Their terms. They describe reality in your life in certain ways. You you, you walk up to the lifestyle store. You open the door and and there's a, a, a receptionist that gives you a list of lifestyle brochures. And you pick one and, and the lifestyle brochure describes certain things. And you look and say, yeah, I find that valuable. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I want that. You're well aware of the lifestyle that you want to live and pursue. And, and then something interesting happens, right? The lifestyle that you find fulfilling, the lifestyle that, that, that you want to pursue, it's going to interact with your current lifestyle, right? So it's going to say things about what you currently are doing. It's going to say, yeah, you can, you can participate in this lifestyle, but you see that thing right there? Yeah, you have to stop doing that. See this thing over here? You kind of have to modify it. You're not showing up in this category. This is a really important category. When the lifestyle that you pursue, when, that you value, interacts with your current life, change happens. 
You're led in certain directions. And by the way, willfully led. You choose these changes because you find value in the lifestyle because the lifestyle has promised you something that you want. Lifestyles are massive influences in a person's life. And notice how Paul describes his lifestyle. Look at verse 29. Look at Paul describing his lifestyle to the Corinthians. He says, hey, Corinthians, I'm in danger every hour, guys. Hey, Corinthians, I die daily. Hey, Corinthians, I fight with beasts all the time. He's more than likely not, not talking about fighting actual animals. More than likely, he's referring to an incident in the city of Ephesus where parts of the city rose up against him to kick him out of the city and, and just continued this fighting. So his life is hard. What's motivating Paul towards that lifestyle? What's keeping Paul in that lifestyle? Why does Paul give himself up to danger? Why is that a feature thing in Paul's life that he doesn't walk away from? Why is Paul given over to dying daily? Every day of Paul's life felt like something was taken from him. When he woke up every day and had his cup of coffee, he knew this day I'm going to be less Paul today than I was yesterday. Because something in my life, something in me, something that makes me who I am is going to die. I'm going to be emptied in, in, in a particular way. Something's going to be removed from me. An experience is going to visit my life. It's going to feel not bad. It's going to feel like death. And I do that daily, says Paul. Why? Paul, why do you do this? Because Paul has given himself over to a lifestyle. He's the Apostle Paul. This is part and parcel with being an Apostle of Christ. This is the description of being a disciple of Christ. And what undergirds this for Paul? Is it just that he's a disciple of Christ? No. What gives him that, that, that anchor to root him and to walk through the danger and the daily death? Belief in the resurrection of the dead. That's what that lifestyle promises. That's what Paul is holding on to. I, I, there's life for me after this, this life. There's something for me on the other side of the danger and death. I can endure all these terrible things because of one great thing. That Christ is raised from the dead. And the, the, the flip of that is, if the dead are not raised, just do what you want, man. Just, just give in. The trouble that you have in your marriage, you and your wife haven't talked, haven't had a good, decent conversation in five years. Just, just step out on her, man. Just, just let her go. Just, it's not worth it. That, that troubled relationship in your family that's caused you harm for a number of years, forget about it. I mean, just, 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 just dump, dump that relationship. There's no point. If all there is is today, listen, just enjoy it. Suck it up, you know. That's their problem. You go and enjoy life. Why bother showing humility and meekness and patience at work 
when your boss is a jerk and he's abusive and he yells at you. But why take that? If all we have is today, why not knock him across the face, right? And get fired, but feel good. Yeah, I showed, showed that guy who's boss. Why? Why battle sin? One of the saddest experiences I have as, as, as a pastor is when people come into my office and they retell of constant battles with particular sins. Constant battles with, with unique expressions of sin in their lives. Day in and day out. Week in, week out. For years. A constant struggle of trying to be released from the influence of oppression of a sin. If there is no resurrection of the dead, sin away. Sin away. Makes no sense to be a good person. Makes no sense to restrict you in any way. Why would you restrict yourself of pleasure if there is no life after this one? Why? But because there is life after this one, because there is this thing called the resurrection of the dead, we, we, we are... Now motivated, we're influenced in a certain direction. Now earlier I asked, do you want to live life or do you want to be raised from the dead? Kurt, you can come back up or whoever's going to come back up. Do you want to live life or do you want to be raised from the dead? Now there's nothing wrong with wanting to live life, by the way. There's nothing wrong with you living life. As a matter of fact, scripture describes the good things in life, the things that bring pleasure and joy and fulfillment when they're aligned with, with God's will, of course. Scripture describes these things as, as gifts from God from on high. So, so scripture bears witness that the stuff in life that's good is good on purpose. God blesses his children to enjoy his creation. So, so we, don't, we don't pull ourselves like a life. No, there's good things about life. But, but what's the problem? The problem is answered for us or clarified for us. An African pastor about 1,700 years ago by the name of Augustine wrote in his Diary, I guess, for lack of a better term. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. See, that's the problem, that our hearts are restless. Our hearts are permanently, continually seeking rest. They're, they're wanting to find that thing that's going to give them fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and rest. So they're restless. And the problem is when you mix that with the good things of the earth, these two things in our current setting, they don't, they don't go well together. There's this fatal attraction between the restlessness of our heart and this world. It's like water and electricity. Those two things are attracted to each other. They're not bad. Water's not bad. Electricity's not bad. But you put them close together and you have disaster. We need something to protect us. We need something to insulate our hearts, to ground us in something outside of the restlessness of our heart and the good things of 
the earth. Last week, we, we met one of those influencers. We met death. We talked about death. And death, death serves a number of purpose. I wrote in your outline that death leads you away from life. What did I mean by that? Matthew McCullough in his book, Remember Death, helps me. He says, everyone's diagnosis is terminal. The fact acknowledged or not has a devastating effect on the meaning of what matters to us. You can try to dodge the weight of futility by assuming fulfillment will come when you reach your goals. You can convince yourself you're dissatisfied only because you haven't finished climbing that ladder. You can believe the key to happiness is what you haven't yet reached. Tomorrow can seem like your greatest friend. Tomorrow holds your highest hopes. But in fact, if we limit our view to life under the sun or only this life, tomorrow is not your friend. It is your greatest enemy. Because tomorrow is when you die. So death has this unparalleled ability to wake us up. It's like, it's like smelling salts for a boxer. You know, these guys get knocked up and Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor. So Paul, Paul it's like death is a smelling salt. Whoa. It has this effect of, of, of bringing you out of the days of life. It's a mysterious thing that life attracts us in this way. It hypnotizes us in, such a, in, in, in a, a unique way. And, and death kind of goes against that. Let me give you guys an example. So this afternoon, if you are like me, you're going to watch the Saints beat the snot out of the 49ers. And I'm going to enjoy every second of that game. But if, if 10 seconds before the game begins, I come up to you and I whisper in your ear, you're going to die tonight. If that's all I do, if you've got the nacho tray ready to go, if you've got the Alvin Kamara shirt ready to go, if your face is painted, you're one of those people that goes all out and you're who dadding your neighbors and you've got a party in your hand, just don't tell the mayor. Um, you're celebrating, yeah, who dad, who dad? And I come to you 10 seconds before the game starts and I go, you're going to die tonight. Would you care about that Saints game? No. Would you think of anything else other than your death? No, you'll think only of your death, right? That's the effect of death. It has this bizarre effect where it just kind of startles us into, into wokeness, I was going to say. It, it, it awakens us. But death is not the only influencer. We need another influencer. And this has been Paul's influencer, the resurrection of the dead. Because left to our devices, Death is our only influencer. It leads us places, man. It, it, it leads us to hopelessness. It leads us to fatalism. It leads us where this passage leads. Hey, if all this is, is this life? Let's just enjoy it and, and muck it up and be good. But no, if there is this other influence of the resurrection of the dead, something in us turns on. Something in us is brought to life. The resurrection of the dead saves us from the illusion that life is about to hear and the now. Let's stand together. Let me ask you guys a couple of application questions to close and then we'll pray. If you as a believer, Paul's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. 
If you as a believer were not going to be raised from the dead, what lifestyle changes would you make? If you were not going to be raised from the dead, how would your life be different than it is now? If you were not going to be raised from the dead, what would you give yourself to? What boundaries would you cross? What gates would you open? What, what, what paths of life would you walk into if the resurrection of the dead were not a reality? Second question. If you as a believer, in fact, desire and believe that you will be raised from the dead, what lifestyle change do you need to make? What have you given yourself over to that needs to die daily? Father, we need your help. Every moment of our lives is a fight, Lord in which we are outmatched and outnumbered. There's a team of combatants, oh Lord. There's the devil and he's got a lot of strength and a lot of influence and a lot of desire to hurt us and he's savvy and crafty. There's the world and, and it's alluring and it is exciting and it's got a lot to offer and it makes sense to us in a number of categories and more most shockingly of all lord there's our flesh we we, we ourselves are part of that enemy team against ourselves lord lord we resonate with the apostle paul that sometimes we do what we don't want to do and then we don't do what we know we need to do so, Father, help us impress, O oh Lord, in our hearts and minds the value and the depth of what it means to one day be raised from the dead. Lord, let, let, let that influence our hearts, Lord. Let that lead us to pursue a life, Father, that is characterized by strength and weakness, by faith in doubt. By clarity and darkness and confusion. By sacrifice when things are hard, Lord. Lead us to be your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Great to be with you guys this morning. Those of y'all that joined us in live stream, we hope to see you sometime soon. And church, don't forget... This Wednesday, register for our prayer gathering at 7 o'clock. Hope to see you guys there. Have a great afternoon, and we'll see you next week.